Genesis chapter 1, it's a good place to start if you want to know why I'm here. Start at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. It's on this sheet that you were given as you walked in. But also you can find it, of course, in the Bible. It's the first book of the Bible. And it's the creation and it's the creation of, of man, starting from that verse. Mankind, which is us. Verse 26, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him, male and female who created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thanks, Carl. Here I was thinking Chris was bowing at my feet there for a moment and I thought... Nothing like a bit of obeisance, um, <laughs> but no, he's just picking something up. There you go. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's great uh, to be here this morning, and uh, if you're visiting here with us this morning, it's great to have you with us. Uh, if you could ask God one question, what would it be, I wonder? I wonder what your question would be, whether you'd have more than one question. Uh, my barber, when I asked him, said it's hard to pick just one. Uh, But as a church, over the last month or so, we've been trying to ask people that question. Uh, You might have come along uh, today uh, to find out an answer to that question. Uh, If so, it's great to have you with us. You might have had somebody ask you that question and you're wondering what the answer, what a good answer is, what what the answer to that question might be. You might uh, have been coming along here for a very long time and actually still be wondering what the answer to that question is really is. You might have grown up in the church and be wondering why you are here. Well, people gave lots of different answers uh, to that question. If you could ask one question, what would it be? But that, that, the question, why am I here, was uh, the third most common response. Uh, people asked things like, why did God create the world and people in the first place? Why was I put on this earth? 
Or even just simply, why? Why everything? Why anything at all? Uh, In the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the second most powerful computer ever is assembled to answer the question of, the great question of life, the universe and everything. And after seven and a half million years, it spits out the answer 42. And of course, then they go on to build the most powerful computer ever assembled to work out what the question is. And even though the book is poking fun at the idea of what is the meaning of life, in doing, in doing that, it, it subtly acknowledges, I think, that that is in fact the great question. What, why am I here? What is the purpose of my existence? Albert Camus, the French philosopher, uh, called the question of the meaning of life the most important question that anyone could ever ask. He said that every other question that you might ask is just a question that comes afterwards. It's just a game. Unless you can answer that first question, why am I here? Well, I think there are two ways of answering uh, that question and we'll try and answer, look at both of them this morning. Uh, There's the question of the cause, what caused me to be here, what caused us to be here, and there's also the question of purpose, that is, Why am I here? For what reason? For what purpose am I here? And both, I think, are important in understanding the answer to the question, why am I here? The answer the Bible gives to the first part of the question, uh, why am I here? What caused us to be here? At the most basic level is that God created the world. God created us. So Genesis 1, which Chris read, gives us an account of the creation of the world. And the purpose... I think of Genesis 1 is not to give us the mechanisms, the scientific mechanisms by which God created the world, as much as, as much as to give us an account of the fact that God did create the world and that God created the world purposefully and that God created the world good. So it's interesting by way of comparison to look at uh, other creation accounts from other religions So there's an ancient tale called the Enuma Elish, which was written about 1400 BC. So it's pretty old. I think it's probably, apart from Genesis, it's one of the oldest uh, creation accounts. And what happens in the Enuma Elish, basically, is that there are a whole bunch of gods who don't get on very well together. And they keep getting cranky with each other. And eventually, uh, one by the name of Marduk kills Tiamat, and he splits her body in half... And half of her body becomes the sky and half of her body becomes the earth. By way of contrast with the creation account in Genesis, the Enuma Elish doesn't explain the structure and the order which we see in the world. According to the Enuma Elish, the world is the result of a fight between different gods. And in fact, it's just the body of one God split in two. We're here as the result of a fight. But the Bible says that God made the world on purpose, that God made the world deliberately, that he did it in steps that made sense, and that he made it to be good. I contrast that view as well with the view of uh, modern atheists. So thinking of people like Richard Dawkins and uh, the late Christopher Hitchens and so on, 
So atheists say that on the basis of science that the world has no cause and no purpose. So Richard Dawkins' view of the universe and of life is the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, peerless indifference. A long time before, uh, a while before Dawkins, there was another scientist by the name of Bertrand Russell uh, who wrote a lot about this kind of thing. He was a, a scientist and he wrote, even more purposeless, more void of meaning is the world which science presents for our belief. That is, what's the world? It's, it's void of meaning. It's purposeless. Here's one of his beliefs, that man is a product of causes which have no provision of the end they were achieving. That, that is, there's no design. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms. In other words... You might think that you feel and that you hope and that you love, but actually that's all just uh, random bouncing around of atoms which happen to kind of have coalesced and formed the person that you are. A causeless existence is a purposeless existence. But the Bible claims that God made the world on purpose and that he made it good. And in fact, the Bible says not only that God created the world on purpose and humanity on purpose, but actually that God has created every single one of us on purpose. So look at the, uh, the next reading that you have on the handout from Psalm 139. It's a poem written a long time ago by a person who knew God. And the writer says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. The Bible writer is talking about how intimately involved God is in our lives. He knows every move that we make. He knows when we sit and when we stand up. 
He knows the words we speak even before we say them. There's nowhere that we can go that God doesn't know that we are there. But more than that, the Bible says that God created us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He formed us. He created our inmost being. That is, he didn't just create our bodies, but he created our minds, our hearts, our interests. He gave us our gifts and our abilities. He gave us our uniqueness. God didn't just create the world at the beginning and humanity at the beginning, but God has formed every single one of us. You're not an accident. You're not the random co-location of atoms, whatever that means. You are a person purposed and formed by God. You are here because God said, I think I'll make Fred or Joe or Laura, whoever. God purposed you to be here. You were formed and made by the God who made the universe. Why am I here? You're here because God made you, God designed you, God intended you to be. That brings us to the second part of the question, of the why question. For what purpose are we here? What caused us to be here? God caused us to be here, but for what purpose did he cause us to be here? The Bible gives lots of answers to that question, but I want to just focus on two of the main ones. And the first one comes up already in that part of Genesis that Chris read. God says when he creates human beings, he says, let us make man in our, in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And again, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Or again, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. What's the point of those three uh, quotes from Genesis 1? The point is that God created the world for us. He created us to rule over the world, to care for it, to enjoy it, to discover it, and to develop it. God has created us with this incredible dignity and honour. He's made us responsible for the world. That's an incredible responsibility, isn't it? To be responsible for the world, not just as individuals, but as corporate humanity. We have a sense of that. We have a sense of responsibility for the environment we have a sense that if ecosystems are being destroyed, that it's our responsibility to do something about it. If animals are becoming extinct, we, do, we you know, we what, what happens? We send people out uh, to collect them, a male and a female, and they bring them back to a zoo and they spend loads of money trying to run these um, breeding programs within zoos to make sure that these species don't become extinct. It's an extraordinary thing to do, I find, given that the prevailing philosophy is survival of the fittest. Why is that when we think that the world 
that animals came to be, the environment came to be, because of the survival of the fittest, that we go to such extraordinary lengths to protect those animals which seem to be unfit to survive in their environments. We do it because the Bible says we have a tremendous sense of the responsibility, the God-given sense of responsibility for God's world. God has given us this responsibility, but has also made the world for us to explore and to discover and to cultivate. It's not an accident that planting a garden is very enjoyable and that cultivating a garden is deeply satisfying. It's not an accident that walking in the wilderness is relaxing and enjoyable. It's not an accident that underwater diving or documentaries about plants and animals can be astonishing. Astonishing even sometimes, I think, to the extent that they make your heart sing. Have you ever watched one of those documentaries and you see, you know, you see those helicopter shots? There's a great one. I love Planet Earth. It's one of my favourite ones. And, uh, and they fly out over the cliff, you know, and as they go over, the, the, uh, the camera pans down over this enormous waterfall. I think it's the highest waterfall in the world. It's just an astonishing sight. It's amazing to discover that. And it's not an accident that it brings us pleasure and joy. It's not an accident that some people find staring down a microscope the most exciting thing that they can possibly do in their lives. It's because God made the world to be discovered. One of my great joys is mathematics. I love maths. And I love to discover all these new, you know, just discover new mathematical formulas. They're just so beautiful. Uh, and they all just work so magnificently well. And there's a tremendous beauty. Actually, if you talk to mathematicians, they'll, they'll often talk about the beauty of mathematics, that it's not something that has been created by human beings, but something that is there to be discovered. Don't get me started on my favourite formula. It's just it's too moving. But... Um, <laughs> It really is beautiful. Taking all my willpower not to talk about it. But it's not an accident that that is exciting to some people. And it's not an accident that people get excited when we send people to the moon or into space. It's not an accident that those things are interesting and exciting and moving because the Bible says that God made the world for us to enjoy, to discover and to develop. Now, it's also true, I think, and important to say that the world is not everything that God intended it to be. And next week, uh, we're going to look at the question, why is life so hard? Why, if God is good, if God made the world good, why is there so much pain? And if you're here next week, we'll uh, talk about that more. Uh, The short answer is because... As human beings, we've tried to force God out of the world that he's made for us to enjoy. We've tried to force God out of our lives. But the point for the moment is that the original plan and purpose and design of God was that the world was for us to enjoy, for us to develop, and for us to cultivate. So why am I here? You're here because God purposed you to be here, and he purposed you to be here to enjoy the world and to be responsible for caring for the world.
So lastly, there's uh, one other reason which I think the Bible gives us for focusing, uh, one other reason God, the Bible gives us for why God made us. And it is, I think, the most important reason that the Bible gives us for why we're here. And that is, we're here to know and to enjoy God. So look at the last passage on the handout that you've received. It's another poem, another song uh, written a long time ago. by someone who's enraptured by God. And he writes, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abound and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom. And speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. That poem is a celebration of God. The writer, the, the writer knows that the greatest thing in the world is to know and to enjoy God. To know God because he is awesome and powerful. To know God because he's good to all, to know God because he's a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and rich in love. To know God and enjoy God is the greatest purpose of our existence because God himself is the greatest and most enjoyable part of life. He is the greatest and most enjoyable gift that we could ever receive. We think a bit like that, uh, with people, with, particularly with famous people. And it seems to me that the, that the instinct for us is so powerful. So we see a famous person and we find ourselves thinking that it will be so wonderful to know that person. Uh, even just to meet that. I saw that a few weeks ago with um, William and Kate and George, I think it was. You know, and people were lining up in the streets with, with all these gifts and I just want to just meet uh, William and Kate and baby George and baby George didn't turn up. Everybody was heartbroken. But we think to ourselves that if, that if only we met that person, our lives would be so happy and we'd be so fulfilled. We call those people idols, football idols. Music idols. They have a show dedicated to Australian idols. We call them idols because we praise them and we adore them and we think that they'll make us happy. But those people, whether it's a famous person or whether it's the person who's our uh, girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife, whoever it might be, 
Those people can never bear the weight of our worship and they can never bear the weight of our happiness. C.S. Lewis identifies that in his book Mere Christianity. And he writes this. He says, The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, like maths, Those longings are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking now of what we'd ordinarily call unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of belonging which just fades away in the reality. See what he's saying? In those first moments, there's something that we grasped at, but when we get it, actually, the very joy fades away. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. It's profound, isn't it? These longings, and when we get what we want, we feel as though the very thing that we wanted has evaded us. He continues, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Well, I wonder if you've had that experience, that in the seeking and the longing and the trying to find, you've discovered, discovered that there's nothing that satisfies. Nothing in this world is big enough to grip us or great enough to sustain our love. Only God can feel that. So many of the Bible writers realised that reality. Listen to this, to these various statements from some of the Bible writers. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. God purposed us to be, he made us for this world and to enjoy this world, but most of all, God made us to know and to enjoy him. That same sin which wrecked our enjoyment of the world is the same sin which wrecks our enjoyment of God. It has destroyed our relationship with God. How could it not? As human beings, we've tried to make 
a world without God. We've tried to get rid of God. How can that not destroy our relationship with God? How can that not destroy our enjoyment of God? Trying to create a world without God. But that's what we've tried to do. And the, and the problem for us is that we can't undo what we've done. We can't remake the world to be as God intended it to be in all its full enjoyment. And we can't remake our relationship with God to be the relationship that God intended it to be with all its enjoyment and love. The good news about Jesus the Bible says, is that he entered into our world, that he became one of us to mend the world and to mend our relationship with God. And he did that by dying on the cross and by being raised to everlasting life. Jesus came to begin restoring us and, restore, and to begin restoring the world to be what God had made us to be. And one day Jesus will return to finish that work of recreation Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher at the beginning of the last century. He's famous for being the God-is-dead philosopher. Nietzsche believed that science had killed the need for God. And Nietzsche spent his life trying to work out a way of living within that hopelessly depressing vision of the world. But at the end of his life... Uh, Nietzsche, through the words of one of his characters, acknowledged that life without God was a terrible place to be. Nietzsche had killed God, but at the end of his life he realised that, in some way he realised, that a world without God was a terrible world. Through the mouth of one of his characters he writes, No, come back with all your torments, all the streams of my tears run their course to you. And the last flame of my heart, it burns up to you. Oh, come back, my unknown God, my pain, my last happiness. Nietzsche couldn't live with God, but actually it turned out he couldn't live without God either. And shortly after writing those words, he went insane and spent the rest of his life in a mental institution. Why are we here? We're here because God purposed us to be here. He purposed you to be here to enjoy the world and to be responsible for caring for the world. He purposed you to be here to know him and to enjoy him. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your great purposes and intentions in creating the world, creating a gorgeous world of inestimable beauty. So we look out the window and we see fields and trees and birds and animals the sky and the clouds of infinite beauty and infinite creativity. 
Lord, we see each other in all our wide variety, with all our different interests and all our different abilities. And Lord, we catch a glimpse of your greatness and your power. And yet, Lord, the world is not uh, as it ought to be because, Lord, we've tried to live in a world without you. And, Lord, to be honest, most of us deep down have discovered the reality that it's impossible to live in this world without you, that it's a world without meaning, a world without purpose, and even ultimately a world without lasting joy. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to know not only the good purposes for why you created us, but also to know the reconciliation and forgiveness and new creation which is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to trust him and to know him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.